Okay, so we've been looking at the book of Ezra for some time now, and this is the second last time we'll be looking at it. Um, you might be relieved to know it was going to be the last time, but the final two chapters are really tricky, um, and I need a bit more time to to think through some of what's in those last two chapters. So I'm not going to do the last two chapters today. So what have we learned so far from the book of Ezra, anybody? God's in control, okay, yep, good. His plans will happen. Dean has been listening. Dean is rapidly rising to the top of the class here. (laughs) I haven't got a bag of sweets, Drew, no. Anything else that we've learned from the book of Ezra? Sorry, Derek. The primacy of worship, the importance of worship. Very good. Yeah. Rhythm of worship. Yes, the whole thing of having rhythm. Persevering in the face of opposition. Yeah, very good. Oh, it's quite encouraging when you realise people have listened. So God's people have spent about 70 years in exile in Babylon and Babylon is now, has now become part of the Persian Empire and a new king, Cyrus, has taken over. And Cyrus has decreed that as many of the Jewish people as wish to can return to their land. So up until now, in the bits we've read, they've done a number of things. They've returned, they've started rebuilding the temple They've restarted regular worship. They've faced opposition to their building work. They've overcome that opposition. They've completed rebuilding the temple, dedicated the temple, and celebrated the Passover. Um, So all of that's happened in what we've read up or restarted celebrating the Passover. So now we get to chapter 7. And for the first time, we actually encounter the person that the book is named after, Ezra. Up until now, he hasn't featured. So I'm going to read chapter 7. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 10, but I'm going to go through chapters 7 and 8 as part of what we do this morning. Um, The only Bible we have on the projection computer is the ASV, the American Standard Version. So I'm going to read it from that, not because I like the American Standard Version or because it's a better translation, just because it's the only one we've got that we can project because my laptop wouldn't play this morning. Um, but it just shows the benefit of having good Bible software and having about 50 Bibles on your phone. Um, so we're going to start at chapter 7 and verse 1. It says this, Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariot, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which Jehovah, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all his request, according to the hand of Jehovah his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanim unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, sorry, on the first day of the first month, 
he began to go up from Babylon. Came, and he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of Jehovah and to do it and to teach it and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. So that's the background to what we're going to look at today. Um, I apologize for some of the slightly old-fashioned language there. Uh, and as I've said before, the secret with lists of names is just confidence. If you sound like you know what you're doing, no one will tell you you got it wrong. Um, so then, after this passage, we have a, bit, a letter that the king wrote and a list of names of more people who returned with Ezra. And then, at the end of chapter 8, we get some more details about Ezra and how he went about his mission of returning to Jerusalem. And we also get some interesting insights into who Ezra was as a person. So, imagine the scene. We left God's people at the end of chapter 6, having returned to the land. They've dedicated the temple, they've celebrated the Passover, but things are not as you've heard it retold by the older people. You dedicated the temple, but it wasn't filled with the glory of God in the way the previous temple and the tabernacle were when they were dedicated. You're living back in the land, but the city still isn't defended and the walls haven't been rebuilt. Worship's been restored and prophets have spoken into the situation, but people don't really know what else needs to be done to move on to the next stage of what God has for his people. And there is, perhaps, an overwhelming sense of whatever happens next. Not unlike our own political situation here. And into this, that was meant to be a joke, into this <laughs> atmosphere of uncertainty, it's not funny, is it, actually? Um, <laughs> rewind. Um, and into this atmosphere of uncertainty steps Ezra. So what do we know about Ezra? Well, first of all, in verses 1 to 5, he's a man who's a priest, the son of a priest, the grandson of a priest, and so on, all the way back to Aaron. He has an impeccable pedigree. That's what that list of names is telling us. This man comes from spiritual aristocracy. Second, he's well-versed in the Jewish scriptures, it tells us in verse 6. In fact, in verse 10, we're told that he had devoted himself to the study, observance, and teaching of the law of the Lord. He's really worked hard at soaking himself in God's word. But he's also a man of integrity who observes it and lives by it and who is passionate about teaching it to others. Third, we learn that God's hand is on him early on in that passage we just read. He's a man with a calling. And as a result, the king has granted him everything he asked of him. Um, and it actually appears to me that Ezra didn't just suddenly one day get a phone call from the king asking him to go and take all these people back to Jerusalem. I read, certainly what we've read there, as, as Ezra having gone and asked the king. Uh, it talks about how the king granted him everything he asked of him. So there's a suggestion here that Ezra wasn't passive in this but had been active in making all of this happen. And fourth... 
we learn, I think, that he's a man of integrity, of great integrity. We're told in chapter 8 and verses 22 and 3 that he was ashamed to ask the king for protection um, or for armed protection because he had previously told the king that God's hand would be on his people and he would look after them. So he put his money where his mouth was. Um, and he was, he, he, he was not going to ask the king for armed protection and contradict what he told him about God. So this is a man of remarkable integrity, really. And fifth, he was real. I like Bible characters who are real. Um, having told the king this, that God would protect him, and sometimes if you're in a leadership role, this happens, you go home and think, oh my goodness, what have I just said? Um, he was nervous, so he calls the people to fast and pray. So he's real. He recognises, yes, I've said that God will protect us, but I also need to lay hold of God to protect us, and he calls people to fast and pray for God's protection on that journey. So that's Ezra. I quite like him, and I like his style. Now, we didn't read the letter from the king, but the king also sends a whole wad of cash um, for sacrifices, huge amounts of money and gold for sacrifices when they get to Jerusalem. And Ezra is also instructed by Artaxerxes to punish anyone who doesn't submit to God's law, um, and he's authorised to kill them, banish them, confiscate their property, or imprison them. So this, and that's from the king himself. So this is quite a turnaround. I'm not saying we should um, kill, banish, confiscate, and what have you, imprison people who, who don't, don't believe as we do. Um, I've lost my train now. Oh yes, so this is quite a turnaround for people who we've heard up until now have been facing what every time they tried to do anything? Persecution, opposition, haven't they? Every time they've tried to do anything, someone's turned up with a letter from the council basically saying you can't do it. Um, so it's quite a turnaround that for all this opposition they've faced down many years, suddenly the king is saying, off you go, kill anyone who gets in your way, here's some cash, um, and tell the local governor he's got to pay for everything. It's a complete turnaround. Um, I mean, we actually, in Basingstoke over the last 30-odd years, we have seen quite a turnaround, I think. There was a time when every time we as, a, as Basingstoke Community Churches tried to do anything, particularly with buildings, the council would stop us or say, you can't do that. Uh, and yet now we have amazing relationships with the council in terms of the night shelter, the food bank, street pastors, many other things that, that, that we as churches are seeking to do. There has been that kind of turnaround as well. So their ministry to God is now being paid for by the king of the very nation that's kept them in exile. The whole situation has been turned on its head. So we've seen that Ezra was, first of all, a priest, he was well-versed in Scripture. He's a man with a calling and God's hand on him. He's a man of integrity, and he's a man who was real enough to have an emergency prayer meeting and fasting for safety on what was a dangerous journey. Um, and then Ezra and the people with him, 
embark on a journey which lasted, if you add it all up, 119 days to Jerusalem. That, I think, is 17 weeks by my calculation. So he duly arrives in Jerusalem 17 weeks later, sorry, after 17 weeks of traveling, along with all of these people, I haven't added together how many people there were, but there were quite a few, a whole load of silver and gold, a letter from the king mandating him to offer sacrifices to God on the king's behalf, and instructing him to teach, implement, and enforce God's law in the land. And the other thing he brings with him is a passion for God's word. So what on earth do we learn from a narrative like this? Well, I think there are a number of things. I'm going to restrict myself to three, and one of them will be fairly lengthy. Um, the first one I think we, that I love in this passage, and I think we take from this passage, is this was a man who had a love and a passion for God's word. We're repeatedly told in chapters 7 and 8 that Ezra was a man who was steeped in Scripture, who lived consistently with Scripture, and who had a passion for teaching Scripture. Ezra's role, as the narrative unfolds in the book of Nehemiah, is to be the one who restores God's word, restores a love for God's word, and who starts to align God's people with God's word. Now, I love that because that's something that coincides with my own um, passion, really. He has this desire to understand God's word. He has this desire to live consistently and a desire to teach others. Now, we are living in a time when, even in the church world, it's unfashionable to read, let alone preach, from the Old Testament, when I talk to other church leaders, quite a few of them actually say, well, I never go near the Old Testament. I'm not touching the Old Testament. Actually, it's all God's word. And it's unfashionable to read, let alone preach from it. Many Christians I talk to have never read through the whole Bible. How can we, I'm not trying to condemn anybody here, but how can we say that we believe it's God, God's word if we've never even read it? And we no longer live in a world in which people have heard the Bible narrative in school or in Sunday school. Uh, when I was at school, I'm not boasting, but you know, we had to say the Lord's Prayer every day. We had scripture reading in assembly every day. Um, and like it or not, we became immersed in at least some bits of that narrative. Um, that is no longer the case. And... Uh, my daughter is a teacher who, she teaches in a Church of England school actually, uh, and last year one of the other teachers came to her because they had to do something on the Easter story, uh, and the other teacher came to her and said, so tell me, what is the Easter story? Um, so not only do children no longer hear it in school, but their teachers don't know the narrative either. So we do live in a time where that background narrative of scripture has been lost. And I'm not complaining about that in society in general. I think it's a problem in the church. Um, but familiar, familiarity with the Bible is at an all-time low in the church as a whole, not just necessarily speaking about us as a church. And Bible teaching is something that's become unfashionable in churches. And there's great pressure to talk in TED Talk type segments 
um, to make Bible teaching more palatable. Um, I actually grew up on hearing people preach for about an hour. Um, And one thing I learned was there were some people I could listen to for an hour and it felt like five minutes. And there were some people I could listen to who would talk for five minutes and it didn't feel like five minutes. Um, But there, there is great pressure and there's a devaluing of Bible teaching. I was interested in the passage that Rachel read earlier, talking about teaching your precepts, I think, from one generation to another. And I think my challenge this morning is a a kind of intergenerational one, actually. Um, We need Ezra's nowadays more than we've ever needed them. We need people who are soaked in the biblical narrative, not people who've pasted a few Bible texts as proof texts onto secular ideas. I'm not knocking any particular group there, but I'm knocking quite a few groups. Um, But actually, we need to be soaked in this narrative, not ripping verses out of context just to justify what we're saying or teaching. We need people who've got a passion for Scripture, for God's Word, and a deep desire to teach it, and who are prepared to put the work into grappling with it, explaining it, and soaking themselves in it. Because unless we do, we will have a very superficial approach to it. And we also need Ezra's who will not only seek to understand it, but who are prepared to live out what they read. We need to be people who have integrity and to be open to being changed continually by what we read and learn in our Bible reading. I had, I think I've talked about this before, but I had, when I was first first became a Christian, I became a Christian at the age of 17 and we joined a Baptist church that actually had fantastic teaching. Um, I thank God for the teaching I received in my early Christian years. Um, And I, so one of the first things I did was to start reading scripture. I started at Matthew, I started at Genesis uh, and decided in the end I'd read some Old Testament and some New Testament because I got a bit bogged down in certain bits of the Old Testament. Um, And as I read my Bible, when I first became a Christian as an 18, 19 year old, I can remember coming across things that really challenged me. Um, I was in a group of friends where, you know, we would, if someone did something silly, we'd call them an idiot. Um, And I can remember coming up against that bit in Matthew where Jesus says, and if you call your brother, you fool, you'll be subject to the hell of fire. Um, And I can remember at that point being deeply convicted by God over the way I was using language and more generally, actually, by my sense of humour. I can have a very cutting sense of humour if I'm not careful. Some of you are smiling. Um, And it's one of those things that I've had to watch and continue to have to watch, but I have to take it back to the standard of Scripture the whole time. And we need to be people who, and I fail as often as I succeed, but we have to be people who are are going to allow ourselves to be shaped by Scripture. Um, And the place of Scripture is being lost in the church as well as in the world outside, I I am convinced. Um, So, I think the challenge for us is, do we love God's Word? Do we love reading it? I'm not trying to condemn anyone here. And do we dwell in that narrative? Do I place myself in that narrative of what God is doing among his people in this day and this age? Do I see myself 
in that succession of people from Abraham right through to the book of Revelation when the Lord Jesus returns in glory to rule and to reign. Do I see myself in that narrative? Do I know where my place is in that narrative? Um, Now, it might appear to be an incredibly high standard, and we probably won't get it all at once. Um, The pastor of the church I was in before we moved to Tadley, or one of the previous pastors, used to talk about He did it in the context of prayer, but he talked about things sometimes starting out as a duty, becoming a discipline, and then becoming a delight. Um, And so the idea being that with prayer, we might start, you know, I'm I'm not sure he was entirely right, but he was, to me, he had all the answers at the time. Um, But we can start out doing things almost because we think we ought to. And we can then turn into doing them as a matter of discipline before we get to a place of delighting in them. Sometimes we want to just be filled with such a delight that we do something. And for some people, that's true. Um, It hasn't been for me in my Christian life, always. It has sometimes. But we, we just need to be people who have a delight in God's word. I mean, I love, I mean, as a 20-something, before I got married, I, I decided early on in my Christian life that I was going to grapple with Scripture. That was one of the earliest decisions I made, was that if I'm going to say I base my life on what this book says, I jolly well need to understand what this book says. Um, and so I grappled with Scripture. I, I, spent, I spent some of my first week's wages buying a Bible dictionary. I spent some of my second week's wages buying a Bible commentary. Um, and I spent, before I got married, I spent one evening a week shut in my bedroom. My dad used to wonder what on earth I was up to. Um, just soaking myself in scripture, grappling with things and trying to learn what, what was this all about? How did it all fit together? How did I, how did I make it? How did I, how did it impact my life? And eventually it became a delight for me. Actually, I love nothing more than to sit down with a Bible commentary nowadays. Um, and an open Bible, um, but I appreciate not everybody's like that. So I never had any intention of being a teacher of God's word. I simply sought to immerse myself in it and to grapple with it. Um, I think I've told some of you the story of how I ended up becoming a Bible teacher. It certainly wasn't something I ever went looking for. I used to be the treasurer of the church we were in before we came here, Um, And, not to put too fine a point on it, over a period of months, takings were bad. And the pastor said to me, we'd like you to speak on giving. Um, Because I was the treasurer. And he felt he couldn't speak on giving because he benefited directly from it. So, I said to him at the time, this sounds awfully godly now, I'm not sure it was, but I said to him, well actually, I'd rather pray about the giving uh, and speak on servanthood which is what I did, and I ended up somehow, it all started from there, so you can blame him for that, or blame the people who weren't giving in our previous church. But actually, we need to start out with a love for and a passion for and a desire to soak ourselves in God's word. Whether we all become teachers out of that is another matter. But, um, you know, I've I've ended up becoming, somehow becoming a bit of a teacher, um, and the reason that I do things like teaching at King's School of Theology is because I am concerned that we need 
to be raising up the next generation of teachers. Um, the second thing we see in, I think, this passage is the combination of word and worship. One of the things that occurred in the church years ago was, I don't mean this church, I mean the wider church, was this tension between word and spirit. We need the Holy Spirit, no, we need the word. No, we need the spirit, no, we need the word. The truth is we need both. Um, And with word and worship, we need word and worship. The two go together, the two enhance one another, and the two reinforce one another. They're not intention. Um, And we've seen in previous weeks how important it was earlier in the narrative for corporate worship to be restored to God's people. And what we see in Ezra is someone who was passionate about God's word, but was also a worshipper. He basically turns up in Jerusalem with several million quid to spend on worship. You know, that's part of what's happening. The king has given him a huge worship budget, bigger than any modern megachurch, I, I dare to venture, has, has got. Massive budget for worship. Stop laughing, Jonathan. Um, I noticed Jonathan's moved from Costa to Starbucks this morning. Is, that, is there any significance in that? <laughs> not, not sure we got the budget for either. Um, so there's this combination of word... At, we don't pay for Jonathan's coffee, by the way, before anybody... Um, but we have this combination of word and worship going on in this book of Ezra that actually... Worship is taking the place it should have. They have this rhythm of worship where worship is happening every day, every week, every month, every year. Um, And this rhythm of worship has been restored. And alongside it, we have this man who is um, a Bible teacher, a scribe, um, who, who turns up with this passion to implement, to reinforce and restore God's word to its right place. So we've got this progression in this narrative. We've had worship restored. Now we begin to see the word of God being restored. And then the third thing um, we see is reality. I've never had much time for Christianity that isn't real. Um, And one of the things I love about Ezra is I can almost see his thought process. As you read that bit in chapter 8 where he talks about why he didn't ask the king for weapons, you can see him thinking to himself, I've told the king that our God's great and that he'll take care of his people. So I can't ask him for armed guards to protect us on our journey. But we've got all this gold and silver and precious stuff we're taking with us, which is just going to make us a sitting duck to any um, mercenaries or robbers or bandits on the way. So we'd better pray and fast and call out to God to watch over us on our journey. I can almost see that thought process going on in Ezra's head. And there's a combination here that I love. There's a grappling with the reality of the situation. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He doesn't just say, never mind, God will look after it, which isn't always spirituality. Sometimes it's stupidity, um, unless it's rooted in real faith. 
Um, so he's grappling with the reality of the situation. And then there's also in play an integrity that won't let him behave in a way that is inconsistent with what he's preached about God. And finally, there's an honesty that is prepared to call on God to help in what looks like a really dangerous situation. You know, walking through 119 days, 17 weeks, with a stash of gold in a wilderness is, is not the safest of things to be doing. Certainly not in that, those days. Well, it wouldn't be nowadays either. So, in this passage, we see, I think, a man with a real passion for God's word. This is a man who loves God's word. He's a man who loves it so much, he wants to teach it and pass it on to everybody else. Um, And we see a man who combines worship with God's word and recognises the importance of both. He doesn't rip them apart, but he holds them together. And we see a man who is real, before God, who's honest about the difficulties he faces and who's not scared to get down before God call on and call on him to lead him through those difficulties. Now, there's one little bit I want to add to the end of this, which I thought was in my notes, but it wasn't, which is that actually each generation needs an Ezra. Each generation needs people in it, or someone in it at least, but people in it, who are prepared to grapple with God's word. Who are prepared to grapple and say, how do we take this and apply it to the world in which we're living now? And also who will have the integrity to say, no, that is deviating from what God's word says, but who are also prepared to understand what God's word really says and not just take the cultural, cultural interpretation that was handed down by someone who was themselves immersed in the culture. And I don't have anybody in mind particularly there. But each generation needs those kinds of people. Each generation needs people who are prepared to grapple with the original languages to say, what did this mean then? So what can it mean now? Each generation needs people who are prepared to grapple with the text and say, what is the real text? We don't often talk about textual criticism up here, but underlying your Bible translation are hundreds and hundreds of years of textual criticism that people have done to say, what's the real text? Um, We need people in each generation who will grapple with that. So my challenge is, this morning, who's next? Who's going to be the person in the next generation who will do the grappling? Because we need people, any church needs people who will grapple with God's word. Who will say, how do we take this and communicate the gospel from this to the culture around us? Um, People who will say, no, that's not actually what it says. People who will say, yes, that is actually what it says. Um, It works both ways. But I think... I sense a real challenge that who's next? Who is going to take up the challenge of handling God's word for a next generation? Because if we don't have those people, we lose something of the depth and the breadth and the the power of the Bible. And we also move into an era where the Bible is no longer the anchor 
that holds us. Um, so I think the challenge I just want to throw out this morning is who's next? Now, I'm not going to do an altar call, um, but we need to be consciously developing people who will be prepared to take that on. And it's far less sexy in many ways to be the one who grapples with the Greek than it is to be the one who heals the sick. I'm not saying you can't be both. Um, it's far less um, interesting, not interesting, that's the wrong word, but attractive to be the one who does that than the one who just, in the middle of a meeting, God speaks and you have this word that has everybody on their knees in tears. But we need both. We need men and women who are prepared to grapple with Scripture and to bring it to the next generation with a freshness and a power and an authority that communicates what God is doing. And it's very clear to me that in this book of Ezra, when God is restoring his people along the line, we've had the restoration of worship, we've had the restoration of the temple, we've had the restoration of the festivals and the Passover, and then we get the restoration of God's word. And every generation needs to rediscover God's word for itself. And those of us who are older need to be active in making sure that we pass that on. Those of us who are younger need to be active in saying, I'm going to grapple. I'm prepared to grapple with this. I'm prepared to do some of the difficult work that's involved in understanding what this means for the world in which I live. Sorry, I didn't mean to say all of that. Um, but that, I think, is the challenge that comes out of Ezra here. Every generation needs to rediscover God's word. Every generation needs to rediscover worship. And every generation needs to rediscover mission. Those are... In every nation, every generation needs to rediscover everything, really, doesn't it? But each of those need to be rediscovered. So, shall I pray and hand back to you, John? Father, we want to thank you for this man, Ezra. I want to thank you for the role model he is for those who would teach, for those who would be teachers of your word. And Father, we want to pr- I want to pray that for us as a church, we will all be men and women who have discovered something, the, the joy of your word. We, that we would be people who delight in your word, not people who regard it as too difficult and put it on that pile. And Lord, will you raise up among us those who will continue to grapple with your word, to grapple with ideas around your word, and to grapple with what your word means for the generation in which we find ourselves living. Lord, we don't want to be people who just hold to outdated ideas that are no longer relevant in a new culture, but we also don't want to be people who throw away what you have ordained and what you have called us to down through the centuries. Father, will you make us a people who do that? Will you raise up people to do that? Will you help us to integrate word and worship together so that our worship is rich with your word and our teaching of your word is an act of worship? And will you make each of us people who are real before you? Lord, we don't want to be super spiritual people who just go about spouting Bible verses without any depth or power behind them. Lord, we want to be men and women who are real about what we face, 
who are real about the dangers, but who still put our trust in you as the way out of those dangers and those snares. Father, will you work among us to make us people who are rooted in you and in your word, who are real about you and your word, and who worship and absorb your word and soak ourselves in the story of what you're doing in this world. Amen.